You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome to the fourth and final panel in USIP series on the troubling spate of coups around the world. I'm Billy Ford, Program Officer on USIP's Myanmar team, and I'll be moderating our discussion today, which will explore the factors that precipitated the latest coup in Myanmar. We'll dig into the implications of the coup and the role of civil society and international actors in restoring a federal democracy. Let me begin by introducing our esteemed panel. I'm excited and honored to be a part of this event since these are some of the most important voices on Myanmar who I followed for many years and whose contributions have become all the more important since the coup. Myate Tetsar is a doctoral candidate at, in global studies at the University of Massachusetts. She has held numerous research positions, including at Oxford University. Her research focuses on subnational parliaments and federalism, ethnic and identity politics, and social media and social change. Gum San is a specialist in human rights and conflict in Kachin State. He's the president of Kachin Alliance, a DC-based human rights organization. He also serves as the spokesperson and secretary of the Kachin Political Interim Coordination Team, which is an organization composed of representatives from across Kachin civil society, religious institutions, political parties, and others that aim to promote human rights, and that coordinates with others within the anti-coup movement to bring about the restoration of a federal democracy. Sai John Yunt is the joint secretary or joint general secretary of the Shan National League for Democracy, one of the largest political parties in Myanmar. Uh, he's also a member of the Committee for Shan State Unity, and he is a leader of the People's Representative Committee for Federalism, an anti-coup alliance of organizations that seeks the, the establishment of a federal democratic union. In addition to his political work, he's a historian, a policy analyst, and a peace builder who has held numerous uh, senior positions in civil society and research organizations. And finally, Kin Omar is a prominent human rights activist and founder of the human rights organization Progressive Voice. She was a student activist during the 88 revolution and since then she's served in numerous capacities, including as a founding member of the Women's League of Burma and of Burma Partnership. She's received numerous awards for her activism, including the Anna Lindt Prize and the Vital Voices Global Leadership Award for Human Rights. Thank you all so much for being here today, calling in from across numerous time zones at odd hours. We really appreciate your presence. Um, I should note that the insights from this conversation will be incorporated into two policy papers. Uh, one will be a short commentary piece that focuses exclusively on Myanmar. The other will be a longer report about the spike in coups around the world. Um, these papers will also complement the forthcoming report of the USIP-led Myanmar Study Group, which is an informal group of former diplomats and specialists on Myanmar who have met regularly since May to discuss how the US can respond to the coup. The study group's discussions have culminated in a paper that will include a number of recommendations support, to support US policy towards Myanmar. And that paper should be released um, early in the new year. Okay, so um, before jumping into the conversation with our panel, let me offer one minute of context for those who haven't closely followed developments in Myanmar over the past 10 months, and then I'll turn to our panel for the main event. Um, right, so in November 2020, the Aung San Suu Kyi-led National League for Democracy won its second consecutive election in a landslide, 
on February 1st, the day before the newly elected government was set to take its seat, seats, the, the Myanmar military detained leaders of the elected government and took power. Since then, a diverse anti-coup movement has used violent and nonviolent means to prevent the military from consolidating its control of the country. The military has responded with its typical brutality, murdering peaceful protesters, including over the weekend, um, arresting thousands, burning down entire villages, and employing torture and sexual violence. All of this in an attempt to pacify a population that is demonstrably unwilling to return to the military rule that it experienced from 1962 until 2011. The opposition movement has multiple components. It includes a nationwide and ongoing nonviolent movement of civil disobedience and public protests, it also includes an armed opposition movement led by ethnic armed organizations and new militia groups called People's Defense Forces. And it includes a range of political actors, including representatives from the deposed civilian government, as well as representatives from other political constituencies, such as political parties, civil society, activist networks, and others. These groups share a common hatred for the military, but have struggled to fully unify for reasons that I hope we'll get into today. Um, dialogues between these political groups, um, which virtually all of our panelists are involved with in one way or another, are ongoing and will be crucial to the movement's success. Okay, so I'll leave it there for now and turn to our experts to dig into the causes and the consequences of the coup and what can be done to restore a federal democracy. Okay, let's dive in. Um, Miate, um, first to you, I'd like to start with sort of a general question to help us understand the causes and the enabling factors that led to the coup. Um, very few people predicted that the military would take such drastic action, um, especially when they had so much political power on the two, under the 2008 constitution. Um, so what were we missing? What were some of the factors that made Myanmar vulnerable to a coup? Well, um, thank you, Billy, and um, thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm really glad to be here. So I think it's um, important to reflect the role and authority in the space of the military or Tamador, you know. So through all the history and at like, until at present, you know, Tamador traditionally see itself in a sig very significant role, like the architect of the country's independence and the um, guardian of the state, etc. So given that uh, construct, um, it always try like uh, to maintain its power and influence to have the largest share in the political space and the decision making. So as we all know that the military all, all also like uh, prepare very systematically um, uh, through 2008 constitution, as you said, uh, for its dominant uh, political position in the transi transitional politics and has maintained its role and authority even in the national and subnational legislatures and executive and administrative system as well. Uh, but while the transition was gaining momentum, the military found is shrinking authority in an ongoing power uh, struggle with the National League for Democracy (NLD). So. So it's and also the the landslide defeat of the USDP at the like 2020 elections. So the 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 USDP is the military backup party. So is that sort of like uh things has confirmed um such an alarming situation for the military. 
So another like uh, threat I want to like uh, threat for the military is that uh, the trial at the International Court of Justice ICJ for the alleged uh, genocidal crime against Rohingyas. So in that aspect, the military became independent, like became dependent on NLDs like uh, particularly our Sansuji's plan and strategy for the game and the goodwill as well. So such condition actually pushed military, especially its top leader like uh, May Aulai um, toward a highly like insecure position. So as uh, like I said, the immediate cause is the 2020 elections where NLD obtained landslide victory, whereas the USDP, the military backup party faced with the landslide loss. So the military's motive for the coup was getting stronger and its calculation began. So like who is going to be on its side or not on the side of NLD. And at that time, NLD's like national reconciliation approach toward ethnic minorities were in the deadlock. So we can see like um, some of these good example that um, the peace dialogue through the 21st century Penlong was in a stalemate and um, ethnic minorities has been losing trust with NLD and its latest like um, even the latest attempt of NLD toward like uh, formation of national unity government in the aftermath of the 2020 elections were also filled like even like amidst of all of these rumors about the possibility of the military coup. So I perceived some of these situations actually influenced the military making miscalculation that minor minority leaders would not stand with NLD if it staged the coup. So and yes, the military's calculation is right to some extent. The military leaders, that the minority leaders and uh, almost all ethnic resistant armies did not stand for NLD, but they just stand against this unrighteousness, that military coup, and that uh, the, the brutal lawless crackdown against the peaceful demonstration of the people across the country. So this is the background situation that I want to highlight. Thank you. Thank you, Sima. Um, Saichon Yun, over to you. I wonder if you could frame this coup in um, a broader history, because it's not the first in Myanmar. But I wonder how, um, if at all, was this coup different from previous coups in Myanmar, particularly in terms of its causes? Uh, yeah, hi, Billy. Actually, my answer to you, to your question is no, and also yes, in some point. Looking back to our history, a union of Burma was formed in 1948 after the Panglong Agreement, in which Robert Burma, Shan, Achin, and Chen leaders signed the agreement in February 12, 1947, aiming to form the Federal Union. Later on, 1947 Constitution was drafted and adopted, but the Constitution failed to guarantee and implement some vital provision in the Panglong Agreement. 1947 constitution was exercised till 1961, and then ethnic leaders realized that constitution should be amended. In June 1961, ethnic nationality conference was held in Dongji, Shan State. The 1947 constitution amendment proposal, which included the federal principle, was discussed and adopted unanimously in the conference. On March 2nd, 1962, General Nguyen staged a coup, claiming it was necessary to prevent the country from falling apart. He claimed that 
ethnic nationality conference aimed to amend and improve the 19, 1947 constitution through federal principle was destroying the union. He also spread the false information about federalism, including secession, which is the promises of Prabhupada to the Panglong in the Panglong Agreement. It will lead to the disintegration of the union. After that, almost all of the participants in the conference were arrested and many died in prison. From 1962 to 1974, the military regime drew the country without any constitution. Later on, 1974 constitution, which recognized and allowed only a single party to rule was adopted and exercised. In August 8, 1988, a nationwide people uprising erupted all over the country, demanding democracy and freedom for all. The people were met with violent crackdown that led to many killed and arrested. At that time, one of the good leaders said, Ghana is meant to shut up. Ghana is not meant to shut up the sky. It's meant to shut directly to the Bucket. Many student leaders were sentenced to many years in prison, including Aung San Suu Kyi, who was put under house arrest. In September 1988, another coup was staged by another general, claiming it was necessary to rescue the country at two inches away from the falling of the cliff. To summarize that, the cause and context of the military coup in Myanmar may vary from one another, but I see one thing in common. If the constitutional amendment proposal adopted in ethnic nationality conference in 1961 was implemented, the country will become federal country in which all ethnic nationality in Parma will govern the country in collective leadership, where there's no room for authoritarian. If the 1988 democracy movement succeeded and was not cracked down by military coup, the country would transform into democracy country where the military have no room in political leadership role at all. So we can say that the reason the military coup happened was just only to protect the individual and organizational interests of the military even though they may claim that it's about saving the country from falling back, restoring the integrity of the country, rescuing the democracy or protecting the constitution, whatever they say. Thank you. That's a fascinating and helpful history to help frame the current moment. Um, Ken Omar, um, I'd like to bring you in. I, I wonder what you think are some of the sort of, we've looked domestically, I wonder what you think of the international kind of external factors that may have made Myanmar vulnerable to a coup? Did the erosion of democracy in the region, for example, or the weakening of international institutions, um, did they somehow increase the likelihood of a coup in Myanmar? What were some of the external factors? Thank you. Thanks, Billy, for having me here. I actually would like to stress the issue of external actors before I actually uh, discuss on the external factors, if I may. The external actors such as like, you know, 
international think tanks, policy advisors, consultants. There were so many of them in the past 10 years. Many of them also brought in formulas and equations of quick fixes to Myanmar's 60 plus year long conflict without really digesting or taking time to really try to understand the local context in depth or the root causes of the human rights violations and atrocity crimes in our country happening for decades or listening to the people on the ground. And that's a big miss. Listening to the people on the ground really deeply was such a big miss and lack for the past decade that I see. There are a lot of tick boxes also from the international community. This made so much of impact and damage on the ground, especially those external actors that don't uphold the principles of human rights and justice and accountability in their approach to conflict resolution and peace building in the name of peace building. And then, and it became quite problematic in my observation. While they impose, while you know, like while, while they impose the the principles of neutrality and impartiality on our civil society uh, uh, actors, in reality, it was rather supporting the one-sided peace, so-called peace agenda of the military, rather than staying neutral. You know, there were no real equal leverage or equal terms for the other parties in conflict and also for the civil society to have a seat at the table. In many cases, the ceasefire agreements signatures were bought out with the incentives of development projects rather than any meaningful willingness to broker peace. And as we saw during the so-called democratic transition of the last decade, the military continued to wage war in ethnic areas committing horrific atrocity crimes with unbridled impunity, never stop. In fact, these international actors kept domestic actors within a status quo. In turn, that I see is allowing the military to retain the upper hand and further embolden them to continue enjoying impunity, staying above the law, above everyone and everything. And of course, that really made Myanmar to be vulnerable for another coup like this. The peace process, there were a lot of window dressing, in my opinion, series of unresolved episodes, despite of the ethnic communities or ethnic nationalities um, efforts all along, leaving, especially leaving the justice and accountability issue, as well as the issue of human rights protection on to one side, like for example, the genocide against the Rohingya in 2017. The international community turned a blind eye on conflict-related businesses, especially in the ethnic areas that the military was largely benefiting from. All of these gave the military opportunity to wield their power boldly, or in other words, allow or created the conditions that partly made Myanmar vulnerable to an, this attempted coup of the past 10 months. Now I want to take the next step on the this, uh, other external factors or the erosion of democracy and erosion of democracy around the world. So I want to talk about the, the erosion of democracy around the world. And I see, yes, yes, you're right. It, it, it has played some role as well as, you know, um, uh, as well in this um, you know, Myanmar situation. For example, the world's largest democracies, when they re-engage with Myanmar in the last 10 years, they gave businesses priority over the protection of human rights and did not address the 
the root causes or the issues of the justice and accountability. And these democratic countries were comfortable to get in bed, to get into bed with the Myanmar military and conduct businesses with the Myanmar military and as if like, you know, everything is now done, right? And that was another, another major mistake that I see, you know, from the international uh, external factors. The multinational corporations from democratic countries like, you know, Canada, US, EU, Japan, Korea, Australia, well, they've been bankrolling the Myanmar military against the UN guiding principles on human rights and against the recommendations from the UN fact-finding mission on Myanmar. So these are also the external factors that really, you know, weigh in on what led to this, um, uh, the, the, this military's attempted coup. The other external factor in this attempted coup by the military is the role of Russia and China. These two countries, that these two countries' governments being anti-democracy, anti-human rights, protecting the Myanmar military for all the decades, past decades, they have always been one of the major stumbling blocks for our country's democracy. Even now with the situation on the ground has reached to a breaking point as the, this, this military hunter really intensified its violent attacks across the country. The Burma currently ranks top worst in September and October in UN Security Council agenda. And yet, you see, we are nowhere near to see any concrete actions from the UN Security Council because of these two countries' governments as the big five, you know, uh, there are two of the big fives and veto. So yeah, it's, it's, these are the, I see as the external um, actors and factors that actually weigh in or make Myanmar become vulnerable to this attempted coup, really. Back to you. Thank you, that's, that's really helpful. Yeah, so it sounds as if you're saying that the, the democracy support or peace building efforts during the transition period um, didn't actually lead to any structural changes, but they actually may have reified the structures that enabled the military to thrive. Um, and that it's not only Russia and China that are causing these issues, but that the democratic nations, I mean, we're even seeing now with India and others who are kind of financing or providing te technical or technological support to the junta. Um, it's not only Russia and China, but also democratic nations that are failing to fulfill their um, role. Um, just one more question coming back to you, Ken Omar. Um, how does this democracy movement differ from past movements in Myanmar? Um, and what does kind of the nature of this movement, particularly its, its strength, its diversity, its sustainability, what does it say about the population's experience with democracy over the past decade? Thanks for this question, Billy. I was uh, one of those uh, student activi activists back in 1988, uh, Democracy Uprising. And I compare between the two movements, very different. Now we are in a total new landscape and also with a very clear vision of how everybody wants to, you know, build a country or live in a country. So I think it's a, this, this very strong popular resistance to the past 10 months of the military's attempted coup really shows the people of Burma's experience with the democracy, not only over the past decade, that you know, when they were able to enjoy or experience limited freedom, but also even under the previous military regime's times, they keep struggling. So this past 10 years in particular that I see is already grounded or rooted in spite of the military's continuing um, control over the country. And now everybody re refused to go back to the status quo of the past 10 years 
uh, facet of democracy, where their aspirations of genuine democracy were held hostage under the military's 20, 2008 constitution. So actually the people have been in a long struggle for democracy, as you all already know. And, and, and we have to take a note that by passing the generations, people of Burma from different generations, they are not naive of the shortfalls and, and authenticity of some of the politicians in the past 10 years. At the same time, also the flaws of the, the so-called democratic transition. But especially the, I would say the rights-based civil society who really work hard for the human rights protections and those who work for the, you know, like a flourishing of democracy, you know, like electoral um, education and, and those organizations, including our colleagues here, you know, like Asiamanya, that this as a research organization, for example, they have laid the foundations of the cornerstones of democracy and they kept working so hard to ensure more opening of the democratic space. But see, like one comes to the national level policy matters when National League for Democracy took power in the last 10 years. You saw many impose self-censorship and Duong San Suu Kyi's leadership, letting her take the lead, while many of them actually knew there are flaws and shortfalls and problematic approaches. For example, when it came to the National Reconciliation, Duong San Suu Kyi and National League for Democracy linked towards the military while they, they themselves continue to be insensitive to the needs of the non-Burma ethnic nationalities, or in some instances, practicing, even practicing the Burmanization policy of the successive military regimes in their approach towards the uh, non-Burma ethnic nationalities. They're not giving due recognition to the ethnic nationalities, historical heritage and role as founders and equal partners of this union. But see, regardless of those dynamics, people to people, community to community engagement and inter-intra ethnic solidarity have been built and strengthened further in the last 10 years. And civil society play a very instrumental role in that. So now that, you know, 10 years of people to people coming together has also become a backbone pillar of the past 10 months of this spring revolution that has become inclusive, vibrant, and diverse in tactics in their re rejection of the military's coup attempt. And with clear and collective vision for a country they want to build and live in that is free from the military's tyranny or any kind of dictatorship. So there is a, like I said in the beginning, it's really a total, totally different landscape in Burma now that they are not going back to status quo before February attempted coup, that's for sure. Thank you, Kenomar, that's encouraging. Um, Gumsen, uh, I'd like to turn to you now. I mean. And pulling on one thread that Kinomar mentioned, um, since the coup, the, re the, the regime has met regularly with its sort of shrinking number of supporters, but the nature of its relationships with uh, these governments, especially its most important ones like Russia and China, um, it seems fairly tra transactional at times rather than a durable partnership. I mean, Russia is making uh, good revenue, I think, on arms sales to the regime right now, and the relationship between Min Online and China is um often contentious i mean what what is your your take on the role of these non-democratic governments in supporting the, the military's effort to consolidate power thanks for being here um to be invited uh my assessment is that uh, they play a very very integral role to in consolidating the power 
very important indeed. As you know, the uh, their role in these multilateral forum or international forum, except uh, especially United Nations. Um, as you see, as our previous uh, uh, Kinoma said, they were uh, they intervened many times in uh, United Nations, especially in the Security Council, in finding a proper response mechanism for the country. And the way they reward these, as in the past, is offering a massive concessions that even would jeopardize the interests of the nation, security interests of the nation. In the past, we've seen Mitzon Dam. Now there's, um, it's, I see Russia and Burma's uh, relations beyond just a transactional issue or transactional. I see it as a, uh, people may think that it's just Burma uh, viewed uh, Russia as a uh, weapon shop, but I see it more of a strategic, becoming of a strategic partner where Russia has a great uh, interest in the region as well. So it's not one-way street. It has, uh, it paves a beneficial relationship for both parties. Um, Russia's uh, presence in, in Burma or even uh, dominance in Burma will play a very significant role in regional, um, uh, in, 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 in regional politics. That's my assessment. And also, as you have um, pointed out, foreign governments, especially our neighbors, two neighbors play a very significant role in Burma's domestic politics uh, since our independence. Um, with peace efforts in in the country, especially during the uh, uh, fighting with the Kachins in the past, I mean, renewal of tension or civil war in Kachin in the past 10 years, we know China's significant role in, uh, in trying to uh, make uh, ways for the army, especially the uh, military. It's transactional in some sense, but on the other sense, it, it's, it's able to take a lot of its uh, leverage, uh, increase its leverage, increase its dominance in the Burmese politics, uh, inch by inch. Uh, it's able to amass its power or amass its, uh, yeah, amass its power uh, over these years. So China's role in Burma has increased in many, many folds within this past two decades. Uh, same is true as well uh, for Russia. And you know, we can talk about authoritarian regime facilitating to consolidate the power of the military, but we also have, cannot ignore the fact that democracies were um, also silent in trying to uh, prevent these consolidation of power by authoritarian regimes. So when uh, KPIC was founded, it was largely founded on the principle to end the authoritarianism in the country, not just a military authoritarianism, but also any sort of uh, uh, big uh, power type of dynamic within our country. Uh, because uh, Gichin's insurrection began uh, not, during the, uh, not during the military era, we have to remind ourselves that 
a lot of uh, ethnic revolutions began during the uh, parliamentarian era as well. So, and uh, foreign governments have played in uh, many roles. I mean, the most important thing of all is the psyche of the military. It emboldens and empowers the psyche of the military that you can get away staying in power by using obscene violence, something that they have seen in, in uh, like-minded countries that you can put people, thousands and thousands of people in concentration camps and still get away with it if you are a good friend with them. Or you can, you know, uh, sort of this uh, wager violence through, uh, to power. And that's, that's exactly what they're doing and they're banking on it and they were successful in the past and they're hoping that they will be successful this time. Because we, I've uh, lived through as a young age through 1988 and also through 96 and also seen what's happened in Saffron. The scale, the magnitude and the atrocity, the quality of brutality have, uh, have gone to a uh, to large scale. It's not even comparable. Uh, even the incidents, uh, the the savagery of these incidents have just uh, has just ballooned to the level that we have never witnessed. And some of them are violence that we have seen in other authoritarian countries. So I think it's light-mindedness of their fellow um, uh, these uh, brutal dictatorship, brutal authoritarian regimes that uh, this current Min Online's army is trying uh, is greatly inspired by. And we have to ensure it's the most, uh, it's the responsibility of the, the uh, of the, of the powerful, powerful democracy to stand its, to, to its ideals. So that's my assessment, thanks. Thank you, Gumsen. Um, I'd kind of like to stay with you actually for one more question. Um, I mean, you mentioned the kind of, that some of the atrocities that um, the military has been conducting since the coup are not new. Um, I think maybe maybe what is new is the um, the fact that those atrocities are now being conducted in the Bama heartland and in urban areas. I mean, uh, I think the UN estimated that forty one thousand people have been displaced in Sagain and eleven thousand in Mabwe, um, areas that haven't really experienced the types of violence that. Um, Kachin communities or Shan communities have experienced historically. Um, so I'm curious what you think in terms of um, what are the consequences of that in terms of inter-ethnic relations? I mean, does the fact that there's a, a now a shared experience of common suffering somehow um, help to create an opportunity for reconciliation and unity um, between different ethnic nationalities? Yes, to a certain degree. Yes. So, for example, what happened in Rangoon last night, uh, I've seen a lot of ethnic people also shared those across various social media platforms. Um, it just, uh, to us, it only uh, proved that this regime or this these people do not, uh, do not serve the interests of anybody. Uh, So-called, even the optic of Burmanization, a lot of people, they maybe have some constituent that's ascribe to those uh, ideas of, you know, or, uh, or support permanentization. At the end of the day, it's not even about permanentization to be truthful. It's about one click of people that wants to retain its power through any means. Uh, 
you know, be, but largely through violence, obviously, as any other institution. But for inter-ethnic relations, I see the greater enhancement of inter-ethnic relations. Uh, we know how NLD handles its uh, handled its power during interim period. They were not full control of the government, but they were very, very, um, to be truthful, uh, they were lax in their uh, uh, in their uh, sincerity uh, with relations to ethnic groups, uh, because uh, these rhetorics. This is not the first time that we have witnessed these rhetorics. To be honest, we have witnessed this rhetorics that you know federalism first. Oh, I mean, we have to make this fight first. Um, even you know prior to 2015 as well. Um, I mean, so in the uh, these rhetorics, uh, we hear these rhetorics again. It's it, it's it's quite funny, but on the other hand, it's a serious thing. But we see this uh, atrocities that's unfolding in the heartland does give a pause to a lot of people, and I think our relationship uh, it has become this you know uh, forged in this really really terrible times, and it uh, you know I think uh, a lot of ethnic understands that uh, realized that Burmese people began to understand the pain and the suffering and the our stories are actually uh, told uh, truthfully. Be Even with Rohingya, who would have thought that NLD members would talk and speak out against Rohingya? Of course, it's a, uh, to a certain extent, it's a political convenience, you know, but we rather want this to be a virtuous pathway for them as well. And truth, true, reconciliation that should be started from those who really were not truthful uh, in the past. Thank you. Um, Saichuan Yunta, kind of am curious your thoughts on this as well. I think there have been numerous efforts to unify the opposition movement, including the NUCC and the PRCF among smaller efforts. Um, what are some of the main barriers to achieving the unity I mean, Gumsan just mentioned some of them in terms of historical grievances and unaddressed misunderstanding and those sorts of, uh, or lack of sympathy or empathy. Um, but I wonder what, what you perceive to be the main barriers to building unity among those who are fighting against the military now, including on these platforms like PRCF and NUCC and, and others generally. Yeah, so, so that was for you. <laughs> sorry. Uh, so, sorry, really, I, I'm not quite, uh, uh, I, I lost a little bit. And can you repeat my question? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I'm just curious um, what are some of the main barriers to achieving unity among the organizations that are fighting against the military right now? Um, I mean, we've, we've seen the NUCC is kind of a, a more inclusive platform, the PRCF is another inclusive platform for dialogue among the opposition actors. I wonder what are the main barriers to building a more uh, unified movement that's fighting against the military? Uh, yes, as you know that there are so many uh, yeah, yeah, uh, groups, alliance, initiating any coup movement like NUCC, yeah, and also PRCF, People Representative Committee for Federal, 
and also some other alliances. They are cooperating each other, and also sometimes, uh, yeah, cooperating within the group, fine for the eradication of the the military dictatorship. But you know, we have to somehow you know distinguish between the different uh, the differences between unity and uniformity. Unity in diversity is not the same thing as uniformity. Unity in diversity is about common goal. Maybe this different action. We all have common goal of defeating this military dictator. I also like to believe that we all have the common goal of preventing not only coup in the future, but also all form of authoritarianism. In addition, I also like to believe that we have all, we all have a strong commitment to the establishment of federal democratic union that enshrines human rights equality and self-determination for all member states. But I do not believe it's practical or strategic to pursue this goal with only one action, one platform, or one front. We must all do what we can, where we can, and when we can, in our own way to achieve this common goal. That means organization like US IP also should somehow continue to support all form of all diverse group. Yeah. So, so actually the hindrance now is that you know, in NUCC, for instance, most of the NUCC member are NLD or somehow pro NLD. So even we are talking about authoritarian and majority, you know, somehow harmonization, you know, actually in NUCC also that, you know, most of the member of NLD think that yeah, the jury power, the representative from 2000 election, you know, they, they are the most power one. And then, you know, somehow not quite um, genuine, I don't know exactly, to coordinate or work with the other group. So actually, even though they are saying that this is the combination of jury power and de facto power, but actually in NUCC meeting, so uh, we see some 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 lack of uh, you know uh, or some lack of um, joint uh, collective leaderships and also actually you know in uh, the hindrance is not the you know it's, it's not the substance but it's just the one say the political will and also you know uh, the the concept actually even those persons won't know understand won't understand exactly what's in their mind but they are automatically somehow, you know, doing somehow like harmonization or, you know, majoritarian uh, concept. So that, that, that's the main thing. So, so if we can correct it up and then, you know, work as in the value, you know, it, as we mentioned in the Federal Democracy Charter, collective leadership and other, other value, if they hold firmly on that, I think, you know, they can overcome and also in some way, we can join together. For instance, NUCC, they are somehow underground because, you know, uh, officially they are somehow, you know, announced by the SAC that they are uh, with some 505A or somehow, you know, uh, illegal. So, but like PRCF, 
group like us, we are still trying to stay still on the ground legally. So that's why, as I mentioned that, maybe we, we have same command goal, but maybe diverse uh, action, different action, yeah. Thank you for that. That's, that's really interesting. And, um, and a major issue, of course, for opposition movements around the world is trying to build unity, um, but not necessarily uniformity, as you've mentioned. I don't know whether Nyate or Ken Omar or Gumsen, um, do you have any thoughts on that question? Um, otherwise, we can move to another section. Any thoughts on the um, question of opposition unity or major hindrances to, to building unity? Um. I have a few, uh, yeah, I mean, if I may share my thoughts on it, on this issue. Um, just because of the, how Burma came about and also this long decades of deficit of uh, trust issue, I prefer to use solidarity rather than unity. Of course, uniformity is totally out of my, 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 my sight. But even the word unity bothers me, to be honest, um, because we need to actually, um, you know, like uh, really like acknowledge the 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 the, the, big, the beginning or the the, the birth of this uh, nation. And some signed the Penglong Agreement, but some some didn't, and some were never even a part of you know any of that that grouping in in back then by political means. So I think you know just like, like really uh, putting the record straight um, of this uh, history is important. And if we are going to do that, if we can do that sincerely, I think unity is something that can come later. <laughs> but then like talking about the unity when we don't have trust, I don't see a point of even saying that. So to me, I'm, I'm, I'm allergic to the word uh, unity, but then I see this, uh, the, the past 10 months uh, gave the most opportune time for this country to move forward if everybody is still wanting to move forward together. But I think um, what I see is um, also, I mean, like I, I hear uh, Sia you're talking about like, you know, the NUCC not being legal, whereas uh, the um, PRCF being the, uh, uh, PRCF being the legal. Um, I think the question to me is to me is when I when I heard is legal by whom? Legal status by whom? I think we have to question that. While of course, you know, like respecting the the existence and role of the political entities or the political uh, actors in the country, but then legal by whom? I think that's the question that I will raise. I think if we can overcome some of these, like, yes, true, we are going towards one uh, direction. And yet also, if we cannot synergize the different approach while respecting and recognizing uh, also each other's role, I think it will still be challenging regardless of we call unity or solidarity uh, for this uh, you know, one direction that we think that we are. But I'm not so sure in that, I'm not so sure that we will be able to do that. But I think it's important also to question about this legality. Because to me, first, this military is not a legal entity. They are not lawful. And, and, and they are attempted coup for the last 10 months. In fact, is failing 
they are not successful. So when they are the one, uh, like you know, when they are the one issuing the directives or amending the existing laws or even making the new laws, I think now the question comes to the other entities in the country is, are we going to accept that coming from this illegal entity, which in fact is nothing more than a criminal gang and terrorist organization? So I think that's a question. I'll throw it back to the political uh, actors in the country. Thanks, Billy. Grimson, did you want to come in on this? I saw you unmuted. Yeah, so, yeah, so I think for the ethnic, it's um, most came to realize that this conflict had, uh, you know, most people realized that we're playing Russian roulette with our lives. Uh, for the army to stay in power. It's a matter of time, you know, it's a matter of whose time it is to be the victim. Uh, and that realization is what's emboldened people to take a much bolder stand that they have done in the past and understand, uh, and forging of solidarity, as Kia Oma said. Unity is based on trust, and trust issue is obviously, it's a very uh, troubling or hard subject because the country after all was founded on an uneven union, right? It was a very uneven society since its founding. Um, and it has also actually avoided um, participation of many other people, especially religious minority or foreign born nationals. Right? And we, um, to be frank, those are really essential a part of, I mean, should be the part of the building blocks of the nation. But so we see that this conflict or this uh, usurpation of power by in online is as an opportunity to take a chance on, on, on the promises of our, our founding fathers. And that's one of the principal reason why the Chins are very adamant or very supportive of the current, um, current opposition. I know we've done it in the past and It'd be uh, really not unwise to repeat the failure of the, of the past. But, um, but at the end of the day, we're still in this one family together. So we have to make it work. Uh, so, and under those principles, and just um, we, can't, uh, we can't let violence win. And that's the sentiment of uh, majority of our people to join this uh, revolution. Thank you. Uh, really, yeah, I, I go ahead, sir. That's just one thing that, as uh, Kinoma said, you know, illegal, illegal is not, you know, actually, I, I, I didn't want to emphasize about it because we as NRV never, you know, joined the SAC, for instance, the UEC election committee or any of their activity. What I would like to emphasize is that we are stand still in the country, in my home, actually I'm in my home. So the way we are doing and the way the other group are doing will not be the same. I mean, just the way uh, the, the different action, yes, I just want to emphasize upon it. But anyhow, we are trying our best to, you know, searching the way to cooperate each other. Actually, Federal Democracy Charter, part one is, Drafted by SNLU, proposed by SNLU. So, so I just mean that, yeah, we, we may have a you know, different way of doing, but we may seek 
to be unity and also we may seek the way, the route to our destination. I just want to highlight on it. Thank you. Sure, thank you, Sia. Yeah, I think uh, a common set of objectives, different methods, um, and trying to find complementarity is critical. Um, just shifting gears a little bit, and Miyate, I'd like to turn back to you now. Um, thinking a little bit about prevention for a minute, and then we'll turn to um, a conversation about response and what should be done. I wonder, Miyate, what do you think, um, what can the US and other democracies do to prevent um, coups like this from taking place in the future at the, in Myanmar, as well as in other contexts? I think the opposition needs to be thinking maybe about, even if there is a restoration of federal democracy, how to build resilience to another military takeover. So I wonder what you think um, the international community can do um, to prevent coups um, like this from taking place. And Ken Omar already mentioned some of the failures um, from democracies and others around the world, but I wonder your thoughts on what can be done to prevent this from happening in the future. Yeah, um, thank you, um, Billy. Uh, I actually like uh, uh, for this sort of like a response, and then I actually want to highlight uh, actually the role of the, the civil society organizations playing because it's really important that uh, uh, to understand you know the their their role and also their contributions right now you know so is is actually like um, one of the the you know um, the you know the forces that currently and also the previously have been serving as that uh you know uh, uh, uh check and balance role and then like uh, uh maybe some people say that watchdog roles, you know, uh, but currently like uh, the civil society organizations, they have been contributing in this sort of like uh, a new like uh, um, like political platforms like and like like NUCC, National Consultative Council. And um, so they, they have been gaining this sort of like uh, the, the, the role and also the contribution like technically and also like uh, politically, you know, that they never ever have uh, obtained like a previous, like a, like political eras. Like, uh, so, uh, I mean, the, the, you know, this sort of like uh, multi-stakeholder platforms is kind of important and the rule of, and then like uh, the rule of the civil society organizations uh, actually in that platform is actually like uh, is is increasing. So this is actually very good like um, um, uh, moment. Um, so like, I mean, sort of like um, maybe people like some of these observers and things that the, 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 like some of some of the international organizations thinks that oh Myanmar civil society organizations has been like silent or like they 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 have been you know like uh uh washed away by this sort of like uh devastated like uh the, the tsunami you know like the political tsunami you know happened after the in the aftermath of the coup but they don't actually they have this sort of like us with the spirit and actually they have been trying to actually responding um, uh, in a different, like uh, meaningful ways, you know. So it's really important to understand different like uh, actors role and then the civil society, the, the role of the civil society is really important, you know. So um, this is one thing. And another thing is that um, 
I mean, not we can say that not every you know like um like coup you know leads to a long lasting like authoritarianism. But the case of Myanmar is very obvious and no doubt at all that if this time this resistance against military junta fail, the country is very likely uh, to stay like under the military dictatorship for several more decades. It's going to be like uh, 20 years, 30 years, or maybe endless for us to stay under this brutal dictatorship, right? So the U.S. and the democratic international community should take a decisive approach in supporting anti-coup and a pro-democracy like, like revolution. Here, I just like even want to use the term revolution. Because we are not merely in this in in the like anti-coup movements, but in revolutions. So we need this destructive reconstruction, like first to end the deep-rooted military authoritarian culture, and then to start a genuine, like inclusive democratic society. So, so, so maybe like some of these people, like uh, observers or international community, thinks that this approach is idealistic. Actually, it is not. The history has full of like examples that uh, give us enough confidence um, that uh, such a destruct destructive reconstruction would and would render a better society and political system that we all like, uh, especially the, the the minorities like uh, has been longing for like throughout the history. So even like the history of the United States alone and itself is enough case for us to refer right. So I would recommend a decisive support for anti-coup democratic forces here, like, and, and uh, we should, at, at this point, like, we should not limit with that uh, NUG and NUCC in considering like a key democratic actors, but we also need to understand the position and strategies of different actors, like including PSCF and then, and also the also the, the position of the minorities within the minorities, right? This like, like between like, um, um, ethnic groups, like uh, both the politics of like ethnic minorities is also important to understand, you know, so, so this is really important, you know, and um, I also want to make like, uh, is like another point is that that Myanmar military, like Myanmar authoritarianism or whatever we call militarism or or state like a uh, driven like uh, conflicts always go hand in hand with like extreme nationalistic sentiment. And and then here, like the military is also very good at um, uh, using that um, the that like nationalistic nationalism card, you know. So in this like current context, context um, as part of the military's um, divide and rule strategy, it has been like uh, the military has been weaponizing the ultra nationalistic group called like the Pew Sorti or, you know, like Mabata at the community level. So this sort of extremist group that we can even call them and civil society, you know, that which is the opposite of the civil society are now empowered and, and rising uh, with, even with the lethal weapons like provided by the military. So now we have an alarming situation that the level of the mistrust among community members are growing with like a huge potential of leading to endless bloodshed among civilian like um, community. So this is time now that uh, we need a decisive support from democratic like international community in, um, in, in ending this military junta and rebuilding the country. Thank you. Hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah, the trust deficit at the community level seems to have potentially insidious effects. Um, 
Gumsen, I wanted to come back to you in terms of thinking about multilateral institutions and prevention. Um, we've seen some symbolic action from ASEAN recently by excluding men online from a few summits and the UN chose not to recognize the military's um, appointee to the General Assembly. Um, but multilaterals have really done little of substance. And you spoke at the UN Security Council, an institution that has failed to act. Um, I'm curious what you see as the role of multilateral institutions in um, mitigating the harms, potentially also from a humanitarian standpoint, uh, but also trying to bring about a return to a federal uh, democracy. Yeah. Um, so the challenge that we have witnessed is that no nation is willing to stand up for, I mean, restoring of democracy or restoring of justice in the country. I mean, let alone the multinational uh, forum, right? So the challenge that we also see is that people, nations are prioritizing their national interest. So even the Burmese people, majority are beginning to uh, think that, oh, these large nationals, um, large nations of global powers are there to just make bucks or uh, for the self-interest. Case in point, even the MOGE itself is a testament that um, even the, you know, the greatest democracy in the world is not willing to stand up for, uh, for you know, money. I mean, I mean, against, uh, I mean, with, it's, it's very easy to take a hard stand against the oil and gas in the country, right? People are willing to chastise themselves to, I mean, willing to forego your pay, willing to suffer in, in, in jungles across the corners of the country, just to prove that they're, uh, they reject this military, right? Um, I think um, international community to, uh, can take a much, hard, uh, much stronger stand, a principle stand. We're not asking them to just help us, but just standing on principle or the, whatever that the charter that they ascribe to, right? To even stand up to those would be, uh, I think it's, it would be a support to the Burmese people. So it is important that uh, it's also testing times for, it's not only in Burma that we've witnessed this, we've witnessed this in many other countries, many other uh, conflict in a global conflict. So it's important that uh, international community commits to its charter, uh, even the UN, UN charter or ASEAN as well. Uh, we, it can't be just a forum where, uh, you know, networking forum for nations. You can't just serve those uh, interests uh, because at the end of the day, that's what they're banking on. Uh, the military is banking uh, on that these international community will just be self-serving and um, that the best response that they could, uh, that the best response from the democracies or uh, civilized nations would be to issue statements, right? And issue solidarity uh, because at the end of the day, it's 10 months already and nothing really substantial have changed. I mean, Burmese people have changed dramatically, uh, but I don't think the international community is, um, is committed to change yet. Uh, and that's what's prolonging this rule. Uh, we we're talking earlier question about what authoritarian regime, regime had done to prop up or to consolidate this uh, online military. So it has done everything that they could at this time to ensure that he's in power, right? 
what does he need? He needs a, a weapon and they're gonna help him. I mean, the sophistication level of military army is unfathomable for Burmese community. Meaning we would not have thought in our day and age that they would be able to use night vision, uh, you know, night vision attack helicopters in this generation. And they're able to do that. They're able to secure any military or weaponry that they need to ensure that they can, uh, uh, they would come out uh, a win and a violence against its own unarmed civilians, right? And um, so I think beyond asking what they could do, um, I think the the question would be if they could even commit the, uh, the the principle that they ascribe to that they subscribe to in these international uh, forum. So that's my best response that I could offer. Thank you. Thank you, Kimson. Yeah, not asking for anything special, just uh, adherent to the stated principles of the organization. And it, just with last night or with uh, over the weekend, the videos of Tamara vehicles driving through peaceful protesters, it's like, it's all, you know, it's out there for us all to see, you know, it's like, and, and burning down of villages in Chin State or entire cities, it's kind of like, at what level is the atrocity adequate to uh, justify kind of more concrete actions that would change the uh, calculations of the Tamara? It's kind of baffling, but um, I don't know, Kent Omar, if you had any thoughts on that, the role of multilateral institutions um, at this point, or we can move on if not. Yeah, I can very quickly say that of both the multilateral, uh, multilateral organizations, and of course those are comprised of the uh, governments, and particularly the democracy governments. I just want to follow on what uh, Sen already said. I think um, it's really uh, distressful for me to see that how uh, the erosion of democracy, yeah, because we're seeing the leaders of democracy are not really uh, keeping up or with their promises or practice what they teach. Uh, I think that is the key. I know we need, really need to, if we really want to prevent the coups or even to stop the current um, Myanmar military's ongoing attempted coup, how do we do that? I think it's really important now the U.S. government also really step up with the very concrete actions that we're not seeing. Yes, of course, there have some uh, uh, actions been taken up, such as like, you know, like sanctioning the two military conglomerates and Mei and a few of the uh, generals, but that's not enough, right? So like Sia Kumsan said, we really need to see more actions. I mean, also the, the reality is like, if we cannot ensure the protection of the human rights, gender equality, inclusiveness, pluralism, how can we have democracy? And with that rule of law, justice accountability, and then the impunity will be entrenched that we have seen in Myanmar, Burma already. So any of the countries with that will always be vulnerable to a coup. Of course, you know, like a democracies of the world cannot always be the savior or like, you know, like a go, go out and, and, and save because the reality is we should be able to uh, build the foundations for democracy and uh, really, take the, the you know, like a stock in it in the democracy building and like you know, really uh, put the, the foundation on the ground. And the Myanmar people have proved far more enough, more than they can ever, of how much they deserve uh, of their desire for the aspiration of democracy. I think, you know, what else do they, do, what, what else the world wants from the, the people of Burma? I don't understand anymore. What else the, the Burma people 
you know, like what does the US government need from the Burma people to really prove off what they need? And, you know, they're sacrificing everything that they have, really. So my recommendation to the US and other democracy is they really need to believe in the democracy for Burma people and any other, uh, you know, like uh, uh, the people in, in other countries who are really sacrificing everything that they have um, to, you know, like really uh, have democracy. And they actually deserve nothing less, no less than the, the people in, in US or, or Canada, really. So these democracy countries themselves, they need to believe in our people as much as they believe in their own democracy. Otherwise, in the name of democracy, dictators will enjoy impunity and destroy democracy. I mean, just my last point. The Myanmar military, again, I would say, is the root cause of the immense suffering of our people. And they are nothing, nothing but a terrorist organization and a criminal gang. The US government must treat them as one. That's what we need. Thank you, Ken Omar. Yeah, that, that segues into the last question as we're coming to time here. Um, I was just gonna ask each of you three uh, kind of top priorities or concrete actions that you would recommend to the US government um, to help um, you know, with the mitigation of the suffering that's resulting from the coup or efforts to um, kind of uh, bring about a restoration of civilian-led democracy. Um, Kinomara, you've mentioned a few points there. I don't know if you had any other specific recommendations that you would like to make at this point. Yes, very quickly. The Burma Act 2021 is right there in Washington, D.C. We need that Burma Act 20, 2021 pass ASAP. It's up. And make sure that because this, this bill actually has many very, it's quite comprehensive. I've, ever, I've never seen that this comprehensive bill before. And, and if that is passed, there are many things that we can do because, you know, in our approach, we are actually applying full cuts strategy to stop this military, cut the finance. So if the bill is passed, then we can really cut the finance going to the military by sanctioning the MOGE. Then we need to also cut the, 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 the arms and ammunitions. Then that bill will allow the U.S. mission in New York to take further steps. To, to maximize their efforts within the UN Secretary, I mean UN Security Council. And we also need the, uh, not only the global arms embargo, but also we need the impunity cut. And we would like for the US government to actually call the spade a spade, which is the what happened to the Rohingya people in 2017 is a genocide. So just call it. But also in you know, joining us in our efforts to address this long-standing impunity of the Myanmar military by really like supporting us, our call at the Security Council to refund Myanmar to the ICC, or U.S. government can exercise universal jurisdiction and make sure you know they like form their allies and coalition to hold these military leaders uh, uh, to account by international law, international criminal law. Thank you. Thank you, Ken Omar. Uh, Gumsen, how about you, um, three recommendations for the US government at this point? Yes, yeah, so the first is the, um, uh, definitely designation of uh, genocide for the Rohingya. Second is um, uh, cutting off uh, the funding for the military. Um, and the third is 
you know, I was in Independence Hall in Philadelphia last night. And it reminds me of the importance of significance the foreign powers have uh, played as well for the US Revolutionary War. Um, had there not been, you know, um, Lafayette or von Steuben, I don't think United States would have faced or French Navy, United States would not have seen an independence because they lost their independence in, after 1776. Um, I think that's what Burmese people need. There's sometimes where people are cap uh, capable to stand on their own feet. Uh, and there are times where they're unable to do that. And United States itself was one of those as well. Thank you. Thank you, Kamsan. Sia Sachonyunt, thoughts from you? Uh, yes, as I'm in the country, so my, my suggestion may be a little bit different from others. So my first, oh, sorry, my third priority to US government is that the priority which will help the emergence of inclusive and multilateral political dialogue and decision-making platform. Number one will be empowering and creating moderate political space. As you know that now the tension is quite intense from both every side, let's say. So in that empowering and creating moderate political spaces, that may include urging the SAC and military to stop killing, arresting the anti-coup movement protester, and also to release all the detainees, and also humanitarian assistance through CBOs and CSO, supporting the media, social media platform, diplomatic engagement to all stakeholders. That is priority one. Second, identify pressure and inducement, which may include targeted sanction, legitimacy denial to SAC, help and support nonviolent movement, and also command ground for civilian protection. That's second priority. Third priority will be develop principle for negotiation settlement. If now I'm saying about negotiation, the, the whole country may say, um, you know, <laughs> something, say something to me, but actually we should have negotiation settlement, you know, principle of it. For instance, military extraction plan, how the military will move back from the politics. politics. Secondly, federal or confederal or secular state. We have to discuss about it. Also, we have to talk about transition adjusting, security sector reform, gender issue, development strategy, multilateral international support for the rebuilding of our country. That should be, you know, in that principle of negotiation settlement. Those issues should be in and discussed and also well-developed. And then I think it will help our country from inside the country, my point of view. Thank you. Thank you. Yate, last word to you. Yes, last word. Um, I actually like um, really support like Mark um suggestion about the Obama bill, you know, like uh, so it's actually very comprehensive. So it's a very like a uh, uh, practical step. 
and it's already like uh, uh, achieved in a uh, U.S. Senate. I mean, um, in the House, and so it's it's just like um, some only like we can say that it's very like uh, feasible, and then it's some like um, like few more significant steps, you know. So it's this is the first like a priority that I want to set, and another thing is that you know, in terms of you know um, dialogue things you know so if the military actually consider in this sort of like a more you know uh, 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 a peaceful or like maybe like uh, retaining is like a brutality and you know uh, taking the like uh, taking the, the 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 pathway of the dialogue it wouldn't actually have this sort of like level of brutality and use of force and then like uh, uh, committing that level of like crimes against humanity, you know. So it's already like uh, past the line. So actually it's leaving the room and this, that, that space even for the dialogue actually is for us, is nonsense at all. So I think we really need the very decisive uh, standpoint for the, uh, from the like international democratic society, including United States, with the people of Myanmar to fighting this sort of like a, the very like our last battle for us. We don't really have, we already suffer a lot. Like we have a triple jeopardy we already been suffered, like the military coup, the COVID, and also like the, all of the economic hardships. But we still like having standing still. We are standing, we are fighting. We don't, we won't give up. We don't have any, like any, any like um, desire actually, like already like uh, the, the, the people of Myanmar showing in a several ways with their lives. So this is my last message that please, you know, just let us, you know, finish our fight against this very unrighteous, very brutal, lawless uh, dictatorship. Thank you. Thank you, Miette. Um, I think we'll have to leave it there for now. Um, thank you mu so much to our panelists, Miette, Ken Omar, Sajonyunt, Gumsan, um, for joining us today across multiple time zones and for sharing your insights. Um, and thanks to those who are tuning in. I hope you found the conversation useful. Um, as I mentioned at the outset, USIP will soon publish two papers related to this event series. We'll also publish the Myanmar study group report, um, which will include deep analysis of the coup and offer recommendations for the US government, um, maybe pulling on some that were just mentioned. Um, stay tuned for those, but thank you all again and see you next time. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.